The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. For those of you tuning in to see Martin Seif, he unfortunately uh, was unable to join us today, but I love talking about him. He's been on a couple of times, and I want to get you up to speed about uh, something particular. First of all, his, his bio. He's an adjunct professor of transnational threats at Bay Atlantic University and a senior fellow of the Global Policy Institute and the American University in Moscow. He's a former chief foreign correspondent for the Washington Times and former managing editor for international affairs for United Press International and was UPI's chief news analyst for 10 years. He's the author of seven books, including Cycles of Change, and that's what I'm going to talk about, which is a political history of the United States from Thomas Jefferson to Barack Obama. Martin has received three Pulitzer Prize nominations for international reporting. He's a frequent contributor at newcontinent.org, continent spelled with a K, and he's on the advisory board of risingtidefoundation.net, a spectacular resource for history and analysis and human empowerment led by Matthew Arrett and his wife, Cynthia Chung, and a number of others, risingtidefoundation.net. And uh, Martin's other uh, work could be found at that newcontinent.org with a K. Now, his book, Cycles of Change, uh, this, is, this is straight off of Amazon. And to hear him and read his articles uh, is a treat. And, but this is about his book, Cycles of Change. America's past is the key to, the future, to its future. We are blind to the changes transforming our nation now because we have no idea how often similar upheavals have shaken it before. Cycles of change is a revolutionary achievement. It transforms forever the interpretive framework within which America's history needs to be viewed. It prevents the epic history of the United States within an integrated model never used before. Trapped in the bubble of the present conditions we take for granted, we have no idea how much and how recently America has changed and how it is about to transform and renew itself again. Martin Schief, veteran correspondent, tackles the extraordinary challenge of reinterpreting American uh, political patterns of U.S. history over the last 220 years. America, he argues, has already gone through six eras of 32 to 40 years length, each of which was dominated by a particular set of political ideas, economic interests, and charismatic leaders from a different region of the country. Each new leadership rose in response to a time of crisis and a set of challenges that had baffled the previous generation of leaders and ideas. Once the immediate challenges had been met, each set of leaders recast America in accordance with their ideas, and it stayed that way for two generations until a new wave of problems and challenges that could not be dealt with by the old answers came up. And that's consistent with 
a book called Generations and something that my boss at Trine Day Publishing talks about all the time, how the generations, there are cycles to four types of generations. So I just really picked up on this description of how we can be set by solutions for a couple of generations until there are brand new problems and challenges. And the likes that we have now demand that we open our minds and have some hope and expect and converse and discuss and debate what's going on and what are some possible solutions. So continuing this description of Martin Seif's book, Cycles of Change, Seif offers astonishing revelations about long revered American icons. Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt are even more dominant figures in his work than popular history accords them. Seif credits Lincoln with creating the legal framework that made industrial America possible. Lincoln's background as a railroad lawyer, Seif maintains, shaped America's success for the 21st century. Seif surprisingly interprets FDR as one of our most nationalist and isolationist presidents during his first two terms in office, and as a war strategist, vastly superior to even Churchill and Stalin during World War II. And there are some surprises. Seif applauds Warren Harding, an architect of economic recovery at home and of peace abroad. Harding, he says, literally worked himself to death in the White House, restoring America's greatness. By contrast, his successor, the grossly overrated Calvin Coolidge, was paralyzed by a severe case of clinical depression during his entire presidential term. Seafree interprets Ulysses S. Grant as a successful, effective president who laid the foundation for 40 years of unparalleled growth. He makes the case that Teddy Roosevelt would have buried two million American boys in mass graves on the Western Front if he had his way and brought America into World War I two years earlier than we did enter that war. And he ex Martin exposes the revered Ronald Reagan as the master of ceremonies of America's decline rather than the hero of its recovery. Steve shows that to view history through new frameworks is to transform it. Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton turn out to have far more in common than either of them would have dared to admit. The now forgotten mass unionization of industrial workers in 1937 and 38 turns out to be an eerie precursor of the far more famous civil rights movement a quarter of a century later. Harry Truman and Richard Nixon turn out to be surprisingly similar personalities upwardly striving, deeply ambitious policy wonks whose more generous impulses were repeatedly subsumed by ugly, bitter souls. Cycles of Change is a page-turner crammed with eye-openers in every paragraph. It cannot be easily characterized as right or left. Seif appears to despise such familiar and simplistic cliches, but it is a must for the policy wonks that devour Politico Pick it up and you will never view American history the same way again. And that was about Cycles of Change by my friend Martin Seif, who has been on my show two or three times in the past, and I look forward to having him again in the future. I feel like Santa unpacking my bag right here because I'm going to talk about 
James Corbett, the creator and force behind the site, CorbettReport.com. And if you don't, if you haven't been there lately, or if you've never been there, you have a treat in store for you. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source that operates on the principle of open source intelligence. And it provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the big brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. It's edited, webmastered, written, produced, and hosted by James Corbett, an award-winning investigative journalist who has lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen's Studium Generale, and he's delivered presentations on open source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation's FOSSA conference at TEDx Groningen and at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto, Japan. He started the Corbett Report website in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. Since then, he has written, recorded, and edited thousands of hours of audio and video media for the website, including a podcast and several regular online video series. On December 18th, he posted an article called Reportage, Adventures in the New Media, and I'm picking up about a third way into it. He's writing, in 2006, he was watching history documentaries on YouTube. And then a funny thing happened. The YouTube algorithm, evidently recognizing that I like to peruse politically charged content, this is James Corbett writing, the YouTube algorithm started recommending videos about 9-11 truth. In retrospect, it's easy enough to understand what was happening. The fifth anniversary of 9-11 had just transpired, prompting record numbers of activists to descend on New York. They made their voices heard, not just on the streets of the Big Apple, but even on C-SPAN. Unthinkably, in today's political climate, America's Public Affairs Channel actually broadcast the proceedings of the American Scholars Symposium on 9-11 and the Neocon Agenda, an event held in Los Angeles in June 2006 that featured talks by some of the leading 9-11 truth advocates in academia at the time. Back in 2006, however, James Corbett writes, I knew nothing about the rising tide of 9-11 truth much less how such a growing movement, energized by the Web 2.0 revolution being hailed by Time magazine, was about to kickstart a revolution in public consciousness that we're still living through today. Sure, I knew that conspiracies exist, but 9-11? That was a bridge too far. It was absurd. It was disrespectful. Still, James Corbett writes, I would click on some inane video about the flying orbs destroying the Twin Towers or whatever nonsense was trending on YouTube that day just for a quick derisive laugh. What fools believe in this nonsense, I'd wonder. At some point, however, one of the videos wasn't as eye-rollingly ridiculous as I was expecting. Even though it made some outlandish claim, 
Perhaps something about the CIA meeting with bin Laden in Dubai in the summer of 2001 or some equally off-the-wall story. By the way, I think that's true. If memory serves, and I'll check in my book, actually, which I have at my elbow here. But James uh, Corbett continuing about the video, this one particular video that he saw. It contained just enough verifiable information to compel me to look it up for myself. Ah, and sure enough, there was a report in Le Monde on October 31st, 2001, citing, quote, a professional partner of the administrative director of the hospital, end quote, in a story about how bin Laden traveled, traveled to Dubai for kidney dialysis in July of 2001 and met with the local CIA station chief, along with several Saudi and Emirati officials, a report immediately denied by the hospital itself, naturally. Or perhaps it was a video about a clandestine U.S. military plan in the 1960s to commit terror attacks in the U.S. and blame them on Fidel Castro as a justification for launching an invasion of Cuba, a claim that, once again, James Corbett writes, seemed utterly outrageous until I followed it back to its source. This time, I ended up in the digital database of the National Security Archive, where I found a PDF file, and this is a live link in this article on CorbettReport.com, containing a scan of the original Operation Northwoods document. Far from allaying my fears, those documents instead confirmed that the preposterous plan for a U.S. military false flag terror campaign in the U.S. was not only true, but that just such a plan was actually signed off by signed off on by Lyman Lemnitzer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and forwarded to the Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara for review in March of 1962. James Corbett continues. I wish I could remember precisely what video or what series of videos got me chasing these wild rumors down the internet rabbit hole. I would happily give that video credit if I could remember what it was. And I would happily explain what particular piece of surprising information got the snowball rolling. All I know is that I spent much of the fall of 2006 learning more about the world than I had learned in the previous 26 years combined. So, James Corbett writes, what did I discover down those YouTube rabbit holes? I discovered the documentaries of Alex Jones from 9-11, The Road to Tyranny, to Terror Storm, to Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove, encountering for the first time the news reports documenting the multiple bombs that were removed from the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, and more, which you will see and hear after this important information 
from TNT Radio. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. (laughs) The world is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk the conversation continues. I don't believe it, and I think that's a terrible position that I am in, that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Stage with Bruce DeTaurus, and I am reading from a pretty new article at CorbettReport.com by James Corbett, who in 2006 had his mind blown by finding some videos that exposed the truths behind 9-11, and then he went down a rabbit hole, as he called it, and he's right now describing the things that he learned in a number of documentaries by Alex Jones. For instance, the evidence that the black bloc anarchists at the Battle of Seattle in 1999 were, in fact, undercover police agents, and the footage of the creepy mock human sacrifice creation of care ritual performed at Bohemian Grove in the heart of California Redwoods each year. That would be from Alex Jones' documentary, Dark Secrets, Inside Bohemian Grove. James Corbett continues, I discovered the work of Adam Curtis from the century of the self to the power of nightmares to Pandora's box, separate titles each, Absorbing information on everything from Edward Bernays, the American nephew of Sigmund Freud and the father of modern-day public relations, to the creation of what we know as Al-Qaeda, to the failed Soviet experiment in technocratic utopianism at Magnitogorsk. James writes, I discovered The Money Masters, another documentary, and The Creature from Jekyll Island, great book and documentary by G. Edward Griffin. Griffith, filling in the gaps in my knowledge of the money creation process and learning for the first time the history of the Federal Reserve, America's central bank. Given the sheer amount of information I was taking in during that disorienting autumn of 2006, is it any wonder I failed to notice that the little acorn sprout in the corner of my room 
was busy growing into a sapling. That's his metaphor for his fascination with the news and information that independent life and truth loving people can find on the internet and post and share on the internet. He continues, yes, out of all this information downloaded quite literally in the hours between my work days and my nights out with friends served to turn my world on its head within the span of a few short months. In the fall of 2006, I was James Corbett, English teacher and aspiring author. But by the spring of 2007, I was James Corbett, English teacher and aspiring podcaster. That may not sound like much, but as someone who had not only never considered becoming any sort of a journalist, let alone a podcaster, but had actively forsworn that possibility when asked what I was going to do with my English degree, let me assure you, it was a profound shift. Subsequently, I'm reading all this, and I'm going to finish this article to make this point. If you've been intimidated to talk about truths that you have found with your family or friends or people at work because they only know what the TV and the radio, the mainstream outlets have told them, James's story is inspiring because as a surprise to him, he became someone who started disseminating the truths that he had found. And he has become one of the most popular, one of the most invited, and one of the most respected independent voices out there, freeing people from the lies and the fear that the mainstream's firehosing at us and inspiring them to protect themselves and take care of themselves and to be the leader of their own lives, to be the main character now in their own lives, rather than just a passive recipient of horrifying information and a feeling powerless. Oh, you can't fight City Hall. And by the way, that is the whole excitement of plugging into and watching and listening to TNT radio, lighting the fuse for freedom, a free speech platform that launched in 2022. And we've now had more than 10 million downloads and we have illustrious guests. We've got luminaries uh, hosting shows, present company excluded, because I'm not bragging about myself, but I am immensely proud that I've been invited and allowed to have this show in order to do things like this, talk about the power of individuals to contribute to what many are calling a tsunami of awakening and how empowering and exciting that is and how necessary it is for each and every one of us to participate in these kind of conversations. So James Corbett had a profound shift into this kind of inspiring uh, field. And he continues, subsequently, I spent the spring of 2007 looking into designing and hosting a website, buying recording equipment, practicing my radio voice, or is that podcaster's voice? And trying to think of the most neutral sounding name I could for a new uh, news and politics podcast. And so on June 1st, 2007, I treated the world to the first episode of my brand new podcast, The Corbett Report. And Corbett Report is the name of his website. Is it the? Nope, it's CorbettReport.com. This is where I'd write that the rest is history, he writes. Except that as I write these words, the rest is very much still the present. 
16 years, tens of millions of views and downloads, and a 600,000 subscriber deleted YouTube channel later. A lot has changed with regard to the work I'm doing, James Corbett writes, and the way I'm doing it. But at base, it's the same thing it always was. The record of one man's attempt to relate suppressed, suppressed truths via a new media paradigm. Perhaps the best way to chart the tenor of those 16 years is to cite Richard Stengel, the managing editor of Time from 2006 to 2013, in the now infamous issue declaring you the Time Person of the Year in 2006. Stengel justified that decision by touting the radical democratization of information that the online media revolution would no doubt bring about. There are lots of people in my line of work who believe that this phenomenon is dangerous because it undermines the traditional authority of media institutions like Time. Some have called it an amateur hour, and it often is. But America was founded by amateurs. The framers were professional lawyers and military men and bankers, but they were amateur politicians, and that's the way they thought it should be. Thomas Paine was, in fact, the first blogger, and Ben Franklin was essentially loading his persona into the MySpace of the 18th century, or Richard's Almanac. The new media age of Web 2.0 is threatening only if you believe that an excess of democracy is the road to anarchy. I don't, writes James Corbett. And here's what Stengel, who, after leaving time, went on to serve in the Obama State Department and eventually uh, author Information Wars, how we lost the battle against disinformation and what to do about it. This is what Stengel had to say about that same subject in 2023. Instead of the few creating for the many, the many now create for one another. The idea was and still is a radical one. If I got anything wrong, it was not anticipating the downsides of this new information calculus, a rise of hate speech and disinformation, and how a democratized system could be used against the very idea of democracy. I still think, James Corbett writes, that the benefits outweigh the costs and that the future of the media still depends on, well, you. And you know what? He's not wrong. Sorry, that was all him quoting uh, Richard Stengel from Time Magazine. Corbett continues. I mean, he's not wrong about the future of the media still depends on you part. Not the hate, the hate speech and disinformation threatening democracy part. Indeed, Stengel is a case study in the phenomenon of once upon a time, gatekeepers of the old media establishment beginning to realize that they can't tell people what to believe and how to think with as much ease as they once did. Their desperate attempt to invent a whole new vocabulary to justify online censorship, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, only underscores the point. They have lost control over the hearts and minds of the public. Yes, the new media revolution has already happened. Like it or not, the toothpaste is out of the tube now, and there's no putting it back. 
one person with a microphone and a genuine desire to spread knowledge, even a lowly English teacher in a roach-infested apartment in western Japan, can make a difference in this world. Take it from me, James Corbett writes. I should know. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to tend in my oak tree. His metaphor for how his efforts online have grown from a very small acorn inspiration back in 2006, 2007. Deep breath, switching gears, but diving into peeling the layer off another incredible realm of empowerment. As I say in the preamble, we'll call it to world stage with Bruce the Taurus, deep dives into dot, 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 the nature of reality. It's my pleasure to talk to you a little bit about a book I just finished reading called The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of the Souls by my friend Guy Crittenden. This is not a trying day book. I am in no way compensated. Guy doesn't even know, I believe, today that I'm talking about his book, which I recently completed and I loved. And if you like a good book, let alone if you like the topic you're about to hear, get it ASAP. The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of Souls by Guy Crittenden. And this is the description on Amazon. Simply the best account of a person's ayahuasca experiences, period. Have you wondered what a ayahuasca experience is like from the perspective of the participant? What are the visions like and the teachings? And I just finished the book, and the book is all this. And have you wondered what's the point of it all anyway? Is ayahuasca a pathway to God, a doorway to the shamanic realms? Are you considering drinking this visionary brew yourself and wondering what to expect? Or having drunk it, are you trying to make sense of your discoveries? Award-winning journalist and author Guy Crittenden offers, finally, a profound and thorough account of his first 12 ayahuasca experiences, taking readers from the Peruvian rainforest to ceremonies in North America, revealing the full potential of this transformative medicine. The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of Souls, is more than a collection of spellbinding accounts of journeys to the spirit realm. It's also an inspiring roadmap for individuals in search of deep personal healing, accelerated spiritual growth, and a call to action in saving our living earth, Gaia, from the predations of our technocratic material culture, disconnected from source. In this book, you'll discover, says this description from Amazon, the official description of the book on Amazon, you will discover lucid writing about the author's incredible journeys with ayahuasca and other Amazonian psychotropic plants, insights into how to work with visionary plants and interpret their teachings, an experiential blueprint for implementing the hero's journey in your own life, revelations from source about humanity's past, future, and current predicament, 
direct reports about working with other entheogens such as San Pedro cactus, cannabis, and DMT, including 5-MeO-DMT toad sacrament and their sacred messages for humanity. The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of Souls, is set to become a classic in the spiritual growth and psychedelic category and will no doubt be read by thousands of people eager to prepare for their own spirit quests and personal healing journeys. Available at Amazon by Guy Crittenden. I did indeed just finish reading this book, and I've never done a hallucinogen. I've never dropped acid. I've never done mushrooms. I've never done anything like that. But I remember about 10 years ago reading about ayahuasca and seeing, probably on YouTube, testimonies and documentaries about it and testimonies from people who had taken it. And I remember being intrigued, thinking, my gosh, if it's all that, wow. And I forgot all about that. And then a few years ago, I met Guy Crittenden online. And perhaps we interacted or perhaps I just read so much. I was so impressed with what he had posted. I reached out to him and I asked him, would he read the manuscript of the book I had written, which was going to be published a few months later? And if he liked it, would he write the introduction to it? That was very much uh, following an impulse because I had worked on my book for years. And to reach out to someone I'd never actually physically you know, met, that's how much I trusted my intuition about Guy. So I think it's appropriate right now this is short. This is the introduction that Guy wrote to my book, which is God's School, 9-11, and JFK, The Lies That Are Killing Us and the Truth That Sets Us Free. And this is not so much to hear about my book, but it's to understand a little bit more about Guy and where he's coming from. He writes, Bruce DeTorris has written an important book. God's School, 9-11, and JFK is as well-timed as it is profound. And this is in February 2021. 20, my book came out that March or April. In some cases, extremely so well-timed as well as profound. Starting with a review of humankind's relationship with spirit as opposed to institutional religion, the text modulates through a review of that other religious institution, public education, to explore the various ways in which human minds and bodies are cultivated like GMO hothouse tomatoes into a sickened, and circumscribed derivation of the wild and beautiful original. This is a buildup to a whirlwind tour of history, and especially the suppressed modern events and patterns the public dismisses as conspiracy. Using documented sources, Taurus smashes the house of mirrors in which many are lost, exposing how major events, and pretty much every war, have been misrepresented with the complicity of a vassal media, allowing a small oligarchy of bankers, transnational businesses, and powerful families to consolidate their influence and control over governments, especially via unelected agencies and the United Nations. Everything from the assassination of JFK to 9-11, from dirty wars in the Middle East, 
Africa, and every continent, to 2020's manufactured biological crisis and the lockdown of the planet, all of it ties together. All this and more after this important information from TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Folks, this happened a few weeks ago, but it's such a heartwarming holiday story. I want you to watch. New York Mets superstar Pete Alonso has a foundation that helps veterans. Here it is. Pete Alonso, his wife, the Alonso Foundation, obviously was influential in helping. Oh, my God. I mean, you never know who's watching in New York City, right? right? Maybe no. he's watching today. If you could say yeah. anything to Mr. Alonso, what would you say to him yeah. right now if you could look? Oh, Sean. Thank, thank you so much. You saved my life. You saved my Sean, we have a... How about you look to the right? Holy <laughs> <laughs> We're on a delay. <laughs> hey, how we doing? Oh. How's it going? Aww. How's it going? Good. Good. Thank Good. you yeah. so much. Yeah, so we have a, we have a gift for you as well. <laughs> What's up, Bear? That was actually a special moment. Absolutely. Hey, good to see you again. What's up, stud? And then uh, we also have a signed bat for you as well. That's a lot to take in. What a great story. Thanks for watching. I'm Steve Malsberg. Thanks for giving me a minute. And don't forget to catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill, the excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. The conversation continues with Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk TNT Radio. And this is World Stage. And I'm bragging on my friend Guy Crittenden for the great book that he wrote a few years ago, 2017, The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of the Souls, his experience with ayahuasca. And he wrote the introduction to my book, God School 9-11 and JFK. And... I was hoping he would be impressed enough to write the introduction, and he agreed to do it. And he talked about uh, some of the things that are in the book, and it continues. Again and again, we see elites benefiting, while the rest of humanity is immiserated and sometimes genocided. Amidst this, I, this is Guy writing, appreciated the robust quotes from iconoclasts like Walt Whitman and Carl Jung. This is a good read in addition to being informative. And timing really is everything. And my book came out in early 2021. Had this very book been released even just a few years ago, it might have been only of fringe interest. Yet today, with illusions evaporating like rain on Georgia asphalt, the Taurus's book hits the mark and offers crucial footnoted information just when it's needed. If you're already familiar with alternate historical perspectives, this book will serve as a valuable reference. It would be a great gift to help awaken friends and relatives oblivious to the digital prison being erected around them by big data and that collusion of big business and government we call fascism, or these days, technocracy. I wanted to brag on his writing power to help 
inspire folks to go to Amazon and find and read about, just read about his book, The Year of Drinking Magic, 12 Ceremonies with the Vine of the Souls. When Chris Milligan at Trine Day and I talked about my manuscript and he agreed to publish it, that was in 2020 and then the book came out in uh, the spring of 2021. Chris said, you've got a good voice and Oliver Stone says I should have a podcast. I said, well, I'm happy to help you with that because I knew how to do audio editing and video editing and things like that. So for the last three years, I helped Chris with a podcast called the journey, and it can be found at trineday.com, T-R-I-N-E day.com, and also on all the usual uh, podcast platforms. And we've got about 139 episodes now, and Chris interviews his authors. I'm kind of like the Ed McMahon. I introduce, I kibitz a little, and then I take it, edit it, and post it online with some marketing. And this is uh, a write-up, some... some uh, paraphrased excerpts from podcast number 135 with Anton Chaitkin. This podcast is titled The Right to Self-Improve, The Threat to Would-Be Masters. Publisher Chris Milligan speaks with Anton Chaitkin about their intelligence agency fathers, secret societies, and Anton's latest book, Who We Are, America's Fight, for Universal Progress, From Franklin to Kennedy, Volume 1, 1750s to 1850s, Anton is deep into completing Volume 2, to be followed by Volume 3. Chris and Anton also discuss the people who made America a prosperous industrial power and why their opponents feared Presidents Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy. And they discuss Benjamin Franklin who instigated the start of the Industrial Revolution in England before the American Revolution. They also discussed the insanity of those who want to keep much of the world poor and underdeveloped and the futility of ruling people without their consent and blocking mankind's right to self-improve. Anton said, quote, God is the only real power. The devil doesn't run the world. The devil wants to... To wreck things. Anton's book, Treason in America, from Aaron Burr to Avril Harriman, documents the takeover of U.S. policymaking by agents and allies of the British Empire. And his co-authored George Bush, the unauthorized biography, helped defeat Bush's 1992 re-election attempt. Some of the dialogue from the podcast. Chris Milligan, Trying Day Publisher. My journey started with my daddy telling me some stuff about being in the CIA, the Vietnam War being all about drugs. These secret societies are behind it all. Communism is all a sham. And to them, it's all a big game that I didn't understand many years ago. I understand your daddy had an influence on your life, said Chris Milligan, Anton Chaitkin. My father was in the Army Air Force Intelligence during World War II. He was an expert in teaching the Russian language to scientists. In an old article I recently found, he stressed that we needed to continue the cooperation that Russian and American scientists had during the war, that the fate of humanity might depend on that. 
he was a Roosevelt Democrat. His outlook was about justice. This helped to shape my yearning for something good in the world, Anton Chaitkin said. In 1966, I met Lyndon LaRouche, and he was warning that the financiers were going to change the strategy of the country away from productive investment to austerity all over the world and wars and so forth. And so we set up an association to combat this kind of thinking that had taken over the West. Anton Chaitkin then said, working on my three-volume, Who We Are, I've been able to see the astounding parallel between three presidents and their opponents, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and John Kennedy, and see why they were deeply feared by the most powerful opponents. Chris said, Franklin Roosevelt really turned on his roots, the people that were promoting him. Anton responded, when he had polio in the 1920s, he, Franklin Roosevelt, studied American history and what happened in his own family. The real problem is Teddy Roosevelt, his cousin. Franklin said, this is not the way. This is not what this country was founded on. He studied deeply the American heritage, and he chose an ally of Alexander Hamilton, Isaac Roosevelt, as his favorite relative. Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy did three things that were outstandingly frightening to the deep opponents in London, on Wall Street, in Boston, and some other places like that. First of all, their program was to have the independence of our country, industrial independence, diplomatic independence, having independent citizens with good enough living and property situations so each person could have their own kind of personal sovereignty. And the nation has sovereignty so we can maintain our independence. And this idea was shared with the world. This was spreading very fast, especially after we won the Civil War and we had that prestige, Anton Chaikin said in this Trine Day podcast. All three of these men had that same outlook about American independence against the imperialists, against the empire. The second issue was that they were building up a popular base of support in the population, in the working class, among farmers, among businessmen, among black people, all across different sectors of the population. Even though Lincoln had not been the most radical abolitionist, he knew, just like Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy knew, that if you're fighting for the nation, you have to raise up the lowliest among us and give them a chance and give them a decent living, a decent part in modern society. Otherwise, it will just break down. All three of them built up a very powerful, potentially powerful kind of base of, for political support. We don't have that right now. The country is divided. A lot of things it's divided about are cultural and secondary problems, not the basic issue that's fought, fought about between the real two sides in world power. Take Kennedy. When he was assassinated, he had as new allies the auto workers, the civil rights movement, and a whole section of small and middle businessmen, Anton Chaikin says in this podcast. His economic policies we're building up the nation and giving us a future with the space program. 
You're talking about a big majority being developed. Same with the other two men. And then the last thing that was really frightening to these oligarchs, these people who believe that God made them in charge of the universe, is that the underclasses, people who are at the bottom or near the bottom of society, were given a true sense that they had a future, that they had something to fight for. When conditions improve for workers, that's when they threaten to go on strike, not when they're desperate, because then they're going to get smashed. People get militant when they have a taste that they could have a future. All three, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Kennedy, encouraged the kind of prosperity that lifted up the bottom. So the underclasses were on the move in America and in other countries that copied us, like China and Japan. The three of them reached out to all these countries. Kennedy's special outreach was to Africa, to the nations of Africa, to the nation... Yeah, I repeated that. <laughs> to, the, to Africa, his special outreach. So-called liberal reformers hated Lincoln, Anton Chaitkin said. And after his assassination, they wanted to stop his legacy from continuing. One of them was Charles Francis Adams Jr., great-grandson of President John Adams. He was one of the powerful leaders of the reform against Lincoln's agenda. In 1870, to the Social Science Association, a private group, he said, Adams said, that industrialization has got to be stopped. It's creating conditions of such increased wealth that it, that it must break down. And the threat of it is that it's raising up these proletariats. He said that there were three proletariats threatening them under this Lincoln agenda. The Chinese in America, here to build our railroads and do other things, under an equal treaty that Lincoln wanted with China. The second, Adams said, were black people in the South. And the third were the Irish, who were coming in without restriction. They weren't dangerous because they were dirty or despicable. They were dangerous because they were gaining power in our country. And they looked to this country to boost them up. Those groups were patriotic. That was a terrible danger to Adams and his class. So you have to strike down anyone who's promoting that kind of patriotism. That is also the mindset of today's establishment, Anton Shadkin said. These are the people that murdered John Kennedy and Lincoln. Chris Milligan said, when I came across your treason in America, I just ate that book up. Because you bring out this hidden history that people are not told about in school. Anton Shadkin said, during the revolution, the country was split between Tories, the pro-British side, and patriots people who wanted a break from England. This wasn't simply a matter of who's going to run the country. It had philosophical implications about whether any group of people had the right to rule other people without their consent. This break included people with strong ties to England, who lived especially in New England and Virginia, and to some extent South Carolina. But I would say Boston was the center of this thing. When we were setting up our government, these people were in the slave trade. They were opium trafficking. These were the famous names of New England. The Boston Brahmins, like Cabot, Lowell, Higginson. And these became the respectable families of New England. They never approved of the philosophy and mission of the American Revolution. The best minds in England were friends of Benjamin Franklin, 
And he was there for 18 years before the American Revolution. He had a group that set in motion tremendous changes for industry and science. With Franklin's guidance, they organized the invention of the steam engine. They also built the canals of England. In the 1760s and 70s, as a result of their work, that was the first phase of the world's industrialization. And great powers were given to mankind. But the British Empire, led by the British East India Company faction, came to a radical conclusion during the war with America, that they couldn't win the war by force, and these new powers of building various things with great power should never be allowed for any other country or people. And they adopted a slogan called free trade, which meant that other countries should not be allowed to interfere with trade to protect themselves. The British would be able to send abroad their cheap products made with modern techniques. And so they would want to use that advance of mankind to harm mankind. Bruce commenting, by keeping it for themselves, Anton continued, this is what is behind the absolute necessity for the United States to break from the British Empire and to protect itself and protect its independence by developing manufacturing and modern society. We had to have tariffs, he said they. This is Hamilton's program. This is George Washington's program. This is Lincoln's program. It took successive generations to fight for this. We had to constantly go back to this philosophy of the revolution, which was improvement, the improvement of mankind. Human beings have rights beyond the right to say whatever opinions come into your head. Other rights include having a family that has a chance to have a good living and having that family respected and having a nation that is based on the policy of the welfare of the population who lives there. Chris Milligan said, after years of reading and thinking about the power structures of the world, I deduced the secret societal system, which is the level above sovereign countries. That's Chris Milligan talking about secret societies. Anton Shakin said, what was the America that these power structures feared? We built our own power structure. This was the national sovereignty idea, and we aided other countries to build themselves up as powers. There are two powers in the world, not one. The devil does not run the world. The devil wants to wreck things. And you have to think of these guys now, think of NATO right now. How did NATO come about? These people are insane. These are excerpts from Trine Day's podcast, The Journey, number 135, Anton Chaitkin, The Right to Self-Improve, The Threat to Would-Be Masters. And his book is indispensable reading for anyone who loves freedom in any country on the world because it shows this distinction how the forces of empire want to keep productive ability and the ability to get rich for themselves and to exploit all other countries. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from Bruce de Torres here on the awesome and incredible TNT Radio.